for this morning, you know, there are a few, there are a number of different ways to approach a conversation around race and justice. Of course, the dominant way in our city is through critical race theory and the rubric of intersectionality. Others come at it through the lens of political theory. Many come at it through the lens of history. And all of those have a place. But for us as followers of Jesus, our default setting is to come at any issue through the lens, first off, of scripture, but even more importantly, through the gospel itself. And many followers of Jesus in our country do not realize just how central to the gospel itself racial reconciliation is. Many people think of it as another issue, a political issue or something like that. There are political ramifications. We'll get into some of that tonight. But for us as followers of Jesus, this is first and foremost not a political issue, not a social issue. It is a gospel of Jesus issue. And in all honesty, my favorite teacher on the gospel and racial reconciliation is Dr. Brian Loretz. And it's really an honor to have him with us this morning. Dr. Loretz, for those of you that are not familiar with his life and teaching, is in his language, first and foremost, the husband of Corey and the father of Quentin, Miles, and Jaden. So that's a woman living with four men pray for her. And he is also the teaching pastor at the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's the founder of the Kainos Movement, an organization whose goal is to see the multi-ethnic church in our nation and beyond become the new normal. He's also a prolific author. His book, Insider Outsider, I know a number of you have read about his experience as a black pastor in a majority white church, is a fantastic read. It really is a page turner. His most recent book is The Dad Difference, which is all about the art of fatherhood. He's also one of the best preachers I have ever heard, and it's no, if you don't know who this man is, he's kind of a big deal. So would you please just give a very warm, virtual and in-person welcome to Dr. Brian Loritz. Wow, I feel like uh, you've been over-promised and are about to be severely under-delivered. <laughs> Um, what an absolute joy it is to be here with you all today. And uh, I, uh, I don't say that because it's the nice thing to say. I honestly, I honestly mean that. Um, your pastor, Pastor John Mark, has just been a blessing to so many people around the world. In fact, I brought one of the pastors from our church, Pastor Charles Holmes. Uh, we have a college ministry uh, at our church there in the Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, if you know anything about that area, there's the University of North Carolina and Duke and all that. Um, but there's also historically black colleges and universities. So um, Charles Holmes, one of our pastors, leads our HBCU efforts and is doing a great job uh, contextualizing the gospel there. But he is a huge, huge fan of what God uh, is doing here. So it is an absolute joy to be here with you. Wish I could bring my, my bride, Corey. Uh, with me. Uh, we've just celebrated 21 years of marriage. And um, um, I met her uh, at a church I was serving in LA at the time. She had just gotten saved, and I felt called to be a part of her spiritual formation plan. So i um, been discipling her for 21 years, and it's been fun. Got three sons, Quentin, Miles, and Jaden, 19, 17, 15. If you want to make a donation to the grocery fund uh, in my house, that would be great. Uh, in fact, I've already got it figured out. When any of my boys come to me later on in life, maybe in their 20s, and say, Dad, I've, I've met this woman. How do you know she's the one? I already know what I want to say to them. If you can look into her eyes the way you look into my refrigerator, <laughs> she's the one. Is that great? Uh, theologian Beyonce says, put a ring on it, put a ring on it. So 
If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. I am... Um, They've got, they've got like a little yellow thing that says teach and pretty much says don't leave this box, um, which as a black preacher is cruel and unusual punishment, all right? Um, so I'm going to try to stay still uh, as much as I can. Um, if you could help me out in the room here, um, there's a little bit of diversity, but it's still mostly a vanilla audience. And... Um, you know, I understand how my vanilla brothers and sisters tend to process things. You tend to be very quiet and cerebral, and because of that, I preach longer to you because um, I don't know if you're getting it. So if you want me to hurry up, say amen, preach it, brother. If you're ready for me to finish, say land the plane, and we will land the plane. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, the guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. If I were preaching this back in the 90s, I would title this Naughty by Nature. That works here, okay, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then again, he says it for effect, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. Paul is writing in Greek, Greek word poema, from which we get the English word poem from. We're his work of art. We're created on purpose and for a purpose. Your mama may not have planned on you being here. One of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, you were a surprise. <laughs> but in the sovereignty of God, no surprises created on purpose, for a purpose, poema, poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 11, therefore, you don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure out that the therefore means that what he is about to say is connected to what he has just said. You with me? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. He now is talking about ethnicity. He is going from the vertical dimensions of the gospel to the horizontal implications of how that plays out with people who do not look like you, act like you, think like you, or vote like you. You Gentiles, in the flesh, 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has both made one who has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, underline this phrase, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I, I probably should have said this up front. Um, don't get nervous. Uh, this is not angry black man time, okay? Uh, I once had a staff member who was white say to me a few years ago, Brian, if you could live at any time in world history, when would it be? I said, black man? Now. Like 1753 wasn't good for me, 1853 wasn't good for me, 1953 wasn't good for me. We have a long way to go, but I'm hopeful, all right? So don't brace yourself for a biblical beatdown. Not going to happen. I come to you in love, not tolerance. Tolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you. I come to you in love. And I want to draw you into the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, would you speak to us? Whether in the room or scattered abroad, would you speak to us? Would the seed of your word fall on good ground? As the old African-American preachers used to say, stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue. Those things you'd have us know, say, and do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. There's a verse that I think every, every adult should be able to say to their living parents. It's Proverbs 13.22. Proverbs 13.22 simply says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I always say this to my dad. And I always end by saying, dad, are you a good man? <laughs> Several years ago, my father and I were out doing lunch, just the two of us, uh, uh, just north of Atlanta, near his home. I think we're at a cheesecake factory or something like that. And, and I, you know, tongue in cheek, I say to him, Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves inheritance to his children's children. And dad, are you a good man? I'll never forget what he said. He said, funny you should mention that. I've made some changes to the will. My ears perked up. Here we are near his home, just north of Atlanta. I said, well, tell me, what changes have you made? He says, interesting, son. I just sat down with my lawyer and 
Here we are in the state of Georgia, and, and my lawyer says to me, Dr. Loritz, I'm so excited to be, be going through this process with you and to making some amendments, some edits to your will. But before we do that, I just got to uh, let you know of something that's very crucial. I, I see you have four kids, three biological, one adopted. Dr. Loritz, I, I need you to know that the state of Georgia is very clear at any given moment. You can edit out of your will, amend out of your will, any of your uh, biological children. Children, but the state of Georgia at the same time says at no given point can you ever amend out of your will your adopted child. That child is secure. This helps me because, because when we fly over the book of Ephesians, this grand beautiful book, Paul begins in chapter 1 by saying that when we came to the foot of the cross, when we were drawn into him by his phenomenal love and grace, he is clear we were adopted into the family of God. Adoption is not second-class citizenship. It is first-rate security. That's why right on the heels of saying this in Ephesians 1, he says, and we were sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. Oh, this is a first century Roman world idiom. When when Caesar wanted to authenticate anything, he would take the insignia on his ring and dip it in hot wax and leave an imprint on the document. And when you saw that, you knew this thing is the real deal. So that when Paul says, when you got saved, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are the authentic ones. We are the real ones. Not only that, that seal meant that what you're about to see has been secure. It has not been played around with. It is secure. That's what happened to us when we got the Spirit. We are secure in Christ, placed in the family of God. What does that family look like? And more specifically, as we begin, how did that happen? Paul in Ephesians 2 now pulls us in to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is all about our vertical reconciliation to God through Christ. It is a stunning picture of the gospel. But before he can get to the beauties of the gospel, Paul begins with the ugliness of our sin. I'm thinking now when I was in seminary, I was Poe. Not poor, I couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was <laughs> Poe. And I was in love with the woman who's now my wife. Now, that's a bad combination to be Poe and in love. But I knew that this was the woman I wanted to marry, so I had saved up some money, and I would walk into, in, in, into various uh, jewelry stores. I would give them the specs of what I was looking for in the, in the diamonds, and I noticed that the jewelers never would take those diamonds and would just plop them down on the, on the glass counter. They would always first take out a very black piece of velvet cloth and would put the diamond on the background of the black velvet cloth and against the background of that black velvet cloth, the, the, the radiance and the brilliance of those diamonds would would sparkle all the more. That is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He is rolling out the black velvet cloth of our sin. Paul wants us to understand you will never appreciate the gospel. You will never appreciate the beauties of Christ. 
As long as you don't have a healthy rear view mirror perspective of the sin that God has saved you and is saving you from, it's not just dysfunction, it's not just issues, it's not just stuff in my past. My past may explain me, but it does not excuse me. We call it what God calls it. It is, it is sin. And because of our sin, he says we were by nature children. That is a genitival phrase in the Greek construction. We were objects of God's wrath. Some of you are listening in and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're going, wait a minute, I, I thought God loved me, but, but now you're saying God's angry with me? How can those two exist? You must not have kids. Because if you have kids, you, you know, can nobody tick you off like those tax write-offs? <laughs> In fact, a sign of our love is anger. I, I'm thinking now that great Abraham Joshua Hichel, who marched in the streets of Selma with Martin Luther King Jr. If you've never read, read his book, Sabbath, you must read it. Abraham Joshua Hichel, this Jewish rabbi, says the only thing worse than hate is indifference. That's why Paul would tell us in Romans 1, the worst thing God could ever do to us is, is to turn us over. It's to shrug his shoulders. And say, okay, I've tried to tell you to hold on to my hand. Don't cross the street, but you're bent on doing it your own way. Go ahead. The fact that God is angry with us shows his profound care and love. And then verse 4. But God... Oh, if I was in a chocolate church, cue the Hammond B3 organ. <laughs> but God, don't you understand the stark contrast, the ugliness of my sin? But God, years of addiction, but God, engrossed and enslaved to pornography or gossip or greed or lying, but God. God's mercy is bigger than our mess. But God being rich in mercy. And then he says, for by grace you have been saved. I love what my friend Matt Chandler says. Grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. It is God's unmerited favor. I'll talk about this some this evening. I, I went to seminary, and the seminary that I went to, conservative evangelical seminary, there was a time in its history where they did not let blacks in. They, they, they wrestled with this in, 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 in later years, and, 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 and they felt like they needed to come to a, a, a form of restitution, what some might call reparations. And so uh, when, when I got there, again, I was, I was po, and I had just done kind of average or below average in Bible college, and so they actually actually gave me a scholarship called the Scholarship for Under-Resourced and Represented Students called the SIRS Scholarship. They pretty much gave me a scholarship for something I had no control over. They gave me a scholarship for being black. I don't like telling you that because there's no boasting, right? I mean, the boasting is merit-based scholarships. I mean, I crushed it in, 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 in undergrad. I had the 4.0. That got me into grad school, and they, they gave me a merit-based scholarship. You maintain the 4.0. We'll continue to pay for school for free. That's the boasting. 
And some of you, if you're a little upset that I would get a scholarship for something I had no control over, let me say to you in the kingdom of heaven, there are no merit-based scholarships. You didn't work your way in. You don't be a good boy or a good girl to keep your way in. What got you in is what keeps you in. It is grace. In fact, in Philippians 3, Paul looks through the rearview mirror of his own, his own righteousness, and he calls it dung. I'll save you what that means in the Greek. Every Friday night's game night in our house. And, uh, man, that's my opportunity to crush my family in Monopoly. I love bankrupting my family in Monopoly. Just love it. Nothing gives me greater joy than at the end of the game to have all the houses, all the hotels, and just stacks and stacks of money while I'm looking at these paupers. <laughs> but for all that money, you know what I've never done at the end of a game of Monopoly? I, I never take that money and go to Bank of America to make a deposit. Why? Because while Monopoly money has value within the realm of Monopoly and the realm of this world, it means nothing. Your PhD might curry favor in, in, in Portland or, or this world, but in the kingdom of God, it means nothing. Your morality might curry favor in this world, but in the kingdom of God, it means nothing. Hell will be filled with virgins and heaven with prostitutes. And saved by grace. Wow, this is amazing. For the average conservative evangelical, I, I bet you, the average conservative evangelical, if they were to hear me say what I just said, it's a reminder. Many of you, maybe if you've been saved for a while, I've said nothing new to you. Maybe you would go, I've heard so many sermons on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. For the typical conservative evangelical, it is as if all of Ephesians 2 is just the first 10 verses. But Paul's not done. We understand that the words of Scripture are inspired, but the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not. They're helpful, they're, they're organizational tools that are, that, that, are, that are beautiful, that are wonderful, that are astounding, but sometimes they blow it. I think Ephesians 2 is the case here. Even looking at, at, at my Bible right now, there's a little break between Ephesians 2.10 and verse 11, and the editors of my Bible have, have kind of inserted a little heading that says one in Christ. Uh, kind of helpful, but kind of not, because what, what is being suggested is, is that Paul's kind of line of thinking is finished. He's not. Paul, watch this now, in talking about the gospel transitions now from the vertical dimensions of the gospel. Now he goes to the horizontal dimensions of the gospel. His line of thinking is completely consistent with the corpus of the New Testament. That is, the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. This is something we Americans have to deal with because in the early 20th century, there was the great divorce. It's called the fundamentalist and modernist controversy. 
fundamentalists said that the gospel is vertical. So just, you know, just have your quiet times and get your favorite coffee mug and your Beth Moore bobblehead and uh, break out your study. Love Beth Moore, by the way. And, and just learn and learn and learn and stuff information and learn and learn because it's just vertical. The modernist says, no, 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 the gospel's horizontal. It's love for my neighbor. And, and, and it was the modernists who were marching in the streets of Birmingham and, 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 and Selma. It's, it's a horizontal. It's hor- but the problem with the, with the modernists is they, they soon fell into the abyss of error because they had no truth to anchor them. Jesus, what would you say? Is it either vertical or horizontal? And Jesus would say, yes. Here, Jesus Jesus, what's the great commandment? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Hear the words of John. In 1 John, John would say, how can you claim to love God whom you don't see while you hate your brother whom you do see? Scholar Ray Vanderlyn. The great Gentile Jewish scholar would say that the Jewish concept of hate has nothing to do with ill will. In other words, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, you can't come after me unless you're willing to hate your mother and father and sister, he's not calling us to feelings of ill will. Ray Vanderlyn says that hate to the Jew was separation. Matthew 10, Jesus is saying, unless you're willing to leave them. And in 1 John, he says, how can you claim to love God whom you don't see while you hate, you're separated from? Your brother whom you do see. I could go on and on. Matthew 18, Jesus would say it this way. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. You cannot claim to be in relationship with me vertically and hold grudges among people made in my image horizontally. Jesus would say, Matthew 25, a greedy Christian is an oxymoron. In Ephesians 2, Jesus would say, a racist or racially apathetic Christian is an oxymoron. So here's Paul. He's writing to the Ephesians. If you read Acts chapters 19 and 20, this is a church that he planted. If you follow the missiological movements of Paul throughout the book of Acts, when he planted churches, they were always informed by Romans 1.16. And maybe some of you who've been around church for a while, you know what that verse is. And oftentimes we quote it evangelistically, but for now I want you to hear it sociologically. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, not to the Jew only. To the Jew first and also the Greek. So when Paul walks into town, he always has two questions. Number one, where's the synagogue? 
I want to be with my Jewish brothers and sisters, and I want to unfold the scroll and, 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 and show them the beauties of Christ and call them to salvation. He does this in places like Athens, Acts 17, or, 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 or Corinth, or, or Ephesus, Acts 19. And, and so some Jews come to Christ, and, and, but he's not done. He then says, well, where do the Gentiles hang out? And in Athens, they point him up to Mars Hill, and he points to a little altar dedicated to an unknown God, and, and some philosophers, some Greek philosophers, First, come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. In, 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 in Ephesus, he, he goes to the hall of Tyrannus and some Gentiles come to know God. Now he's got a problem. Because he has two groups of people, some of which have gotten saved, who cannot stand each other. So what does he do? Had he followed Donald McGavern and C. Peter Wagner, the church growth movement and their homogeneous unit principle? which says, find your demographic, cater to your demographic. He would have started two churches, one on the north side of town for the Gentiles, one on the south side of town for the Jews. It would have been highly pragmatic, but highly unbiblical. Instead, Paul says, I am not starting two separate churches because you don't have two separate gods. Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, One baptism. So I want you to flesh out visibly and horizontally what Christ has already accomplished for you vertically. The multi-ethnic church is one of the most profound apologetics for the veracity of the gospel. So that's right, sports fans. Our roots is multi-ethnic. This isn't something new. It's our reality since day one. Multi-ethnic church, as my friend Rick McKinley right down the street says, is a beautiful mess. And why do you think Paul talks about food? If it's a homogenous church, food is not an issue. But when it's a multi-ethnic church and the Gentile family invites the Jewish family over to their home for dinner after church and they're staring at the Jewish family's face as a slab of ribs, we have a problem. And so they report to Paul and Paul's like, I can see his face. Are you kidding me? I'm in jail and I have to talk to you about food? messy because we're different. John Mark, um, when he was talking to me about coming here, what could I expect? You know, and then it, the conversation turns to various options we can do. And he talks to me about some kind of urban little park thing you have here. And he says, man, if you want to, you can hike. And I'm thinking to myself, black people don't do that. <laughs> like you want me to walk through the woods for what? Go up that mountain for what? Like certain news stories, you know, black people have nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. You've never heard of Tyrone or Keisha getting mauled by a bear. I know you're saying, well, you're stereotyping. Watch the Discovery Channel for a week and count how many of us you see traipsing through the woods. When the crocodile hunter died, 
me and all my black friends said, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll wear crocodiles. We're not going to hunt them. Even some of our worship songs, you know, black folks didn't write oceans. <laughs> Keisha did not write oceans. She just got her hair done. Some of you are wondering if you can laugh. You can laugh. What am I saying? Unity does not mean uniformity. We're different. We're different. And there's nowhere in Ephesians 2 where he says, Gentiles, you have to act Jewish, or Jewish, you have to act like Gentiles. In fact, don't you understand the first church council that is ever held is Acts chapter 15, and what is the issue? The issue is all these Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and right on Paul and Barnabas' heels of leading them to faith in Jesus Christ, the Judaizers now come behind them and says, look, you should get circumcised. It is a case of Jewish evangelicalism. Act like Jews, and you'll be saved. And what is the verdict of the first church council. These, these, these disciples say, you don't have to act Jewish to be saved. You just need to act like Christ. And so Paul, last two thoughts as we close. Paul, why does it matter to you when you walk into a place and you want to go to the synagogue and then where the Gentiles hang out? Because Paul is saying, I don't want to just reach part of the city. I want to reach all of the city. And I know that's Bridgetown's hearts. You don't want to just reach part of the city. You want to, you want to reach all of the city. That there is a missiological, redemptive greed that you have. Why, Paul? Because Paul says, the cross of Christ has served as a sledgehammer demolishing the dividing wall of hostility. This is a reference to the Jewish temple. In fact, my wife and I, we were just there back in November. I was so excited to get to the Wailing Wall with her, and I want to, I want to just kind of pray with her at the Wailing Wall. And of course, if you've ever been, they, they let you know real quick, men and women can't, can't be together. The Jewish temple had four courts. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. In fact, it was the court of the Gentiles, the only place where the Gentiles could worship. Where in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. He is upset, not just at the commercialization of God's house. He is also upset, I believe, he is reacting to a subtle stinging form of passive-aggressive racism where these Jewish leaders say, who cares if the Gentiles worship here? We'll just sell our T-shirts and sell our wares. Who cares? And what does Jesus do? He quotes from Jeremiah as he cleanses the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Then there's the court of women, the court of the Israelites, the court of the priests, each court dividing wall in the late 1800s. Archaeologists actually found the dividing wall, the partition that separated the court of Gentiles from the other courts, and on it had these words written to this effect, proceed no further upon fear of death. My Paul says, on the cross... Demolished 
Those of you who are far off have now been brought near. Now you can rush in together. The imagery is poignant. In the late 1700s in Philadelphia, Richard Allen and his African-American friend had the nerve to pray in the whites-only section of the church. Some of the white members are so incensed, they don't even wait for them to finish praying. They pick them up off their knees and throw them out onto the streets. Over two weeks, all the blacks leave the church. They buy a blacksmith shop, and that is the beginning of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first traditional black denomination in the United States. This would set off an avalanche of black denominations in reacting to the white church setting up dividing walls of hostility. My friend Eric Mason is correct when he says the black church only exists because the white church failed to be the church. My fear is that the American church gets an A plus for resurrecting what Christ has already torn down. And then he says, Jesus Christ died that he may present to himself one new Man. I'll leave you with this. He's writing in the Greek, and Greek is a beautifully nuanced language. There's several Greek words for new. One Greek word is neos, N-E-O-S. That word speaks of something that is new as it relates to time. It's, it's the 2021 Chevy Tahoe. It's it's the latest MacBook Pro. It's, it's the latest jet to come off the assembly line. That's neos, something that is new as it relates to time. That is not the word Paul uses. Paul uses the word kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. Kainos speaks of something that is so new, the world doesn't have a category for it. It is best summed up in the concept of invention. So Neos is the latest MacBook Pro. Kynos is the first computer ever invented. Neos is the 2021 Ford Expedition. Kynos is the Model T. Neos is the latest jet to come off the assembly line. Kynos is the Wright Brothers on Kitty Hawk. I mean, can you imagine... Early 1900s, you're there on the beaches of North Carolina. You're seeing this thing called an airplane. You come back home. Your friends say, so tell me about it. Loss of words. Category, mind, blown. That's the word Paul uses for the multi-ethnic church. Can't describe it. Mind blown. My fear is the church is not blowing people's minds. Of course, that's the rich church. Of course, that's the poor church. Of 
course that's the MSNBC church. Of course that's the Fox News church. Of course that's the CNN church. Of course that's the Mexican church. Of course that's the white church. Of course that's the black church. Christ didn't die for normal. See, it's important that we understand these things as we set out together. Paul tethers ethnic unity to the cross. If he doesn't tie it to the gospel, Christians will leave thinking issues of race and ethnic unity. It's an elective. Take it or leave it. But now that he ties it to the gospel, it ain't an elective. It's core curriculum. I like mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is interesting. I've studied it. It's made up of stuff that doesn't get along. Oil and water. How in the world does mayonnaise get stuff that doesn't mix to live in close community together? You chemistry people, you understand. Mayonnaise has something called an emulsifier. An emulsifier is something that takes different entities and brings them together in close community. And mayonnaise... The emulsifier is egg. It's as if the egg says, come here, oil. Come here, water. Let me be your common ground. And when I'm your common ground, you'll wake up one day and realize you're running with folk and doing life with folk that outside of me you never would have done before. If Jesus is truly your emulsifier, your dinner tables will look different.